Welcome to the Farcast, kicking off our seventh season of giving you insight into Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is the 12th day of October. We get CPI today. And here we are in October, which means we are at the beginning of the fourth quarter of 2023 here. Amazing. The year has just uh, flown by. It has looked nothing like pretty much anyone told you it would look like on January 1st in 2023. That happens often. And I I I begin the forecast with that one observation this morning because I want you to think about all of the prognostications that you're hearing right now, including from us. Everybody often gets these things wrong in the world, of particularly investing, can work out in strange ways, uh, unanticipated and completely obvious only in the rearview mirror. Completely obvious only in the rearview mirror, you know? Um, so uh, uh, here at uh, Revisionist, Capital management, things are getting better every day. You know, that's uh, that's that's one of my favorite old old lines. So where are we? We got a hot PPI number this week, which suggests maybe the Fed will remain vigilant. We're hearing from the Fed that they may remain vigilant. We're also hearing from the minutes yesterday that the Fed was a little bit divided. Should they raise rates? Shouldn't they raise rates? Is two percent still the target? Uh, they said uh, yesterday in the notes, a majority of participants judged that one or more increase in the target federal funds rate at a future meeting would likely be appropriate, while some judge it likely that no further increases would be warranted. If you don't have to increase Fed funds anymore, it means that they're sort of, I think, recognizing this tail effect of the over 500 basis points in increases that they've done already are still having an effect, are still having an an impact. For those of us who have gotten flu shots or COVID vaccine boosters or whatever it is, we know that maybe day one after that COVID vaccine or flu shot, we don't have any more immunities than we had the day we got it. But you let our systems build and work with it for a while, and all of a sudden they have an impact. It might be a few weeks down the line. Same is about a tail effect of some of these Fed increases. So yield curve all over the place. We have seen a uh, flight to quality uh, bounce the treasury yields after the war. Now, Israel-Palestine, that looks just absolutely gruesome, horrible, barbarism uh, in Israel and the Middle East. And I think the response is going to be, uh, has already appears to be very, very drastic and very dramatic. And it might be somewhat offensive to our Western tastes, but I assure you, uh, Israel right now is not all that concerned with our Western tastes. They're concerned about a, uh, I think, a response that is going to be deafening. Um, and there's something, frankly, folks, I got to tell you, I like about that. I, I, I am a humanitarian and I do have a soft heart, I promise. But don't mess with me, my family, or my country. Do not mess. And sometimes I think we go too easy. And I don't think Israel's going to go easy here. Okay. What do we do in markets as we go through this? We're going to go back to our great buddy, Jim Labenthal, who has been through a war of his own over the past uh, 12 months. He really has. 
Jim has been leaning in to the gale force winds of uh, bearish sentiment, and he's done so very publicly on TV, and he's been ridiculed for it over and over again, and he has been right and proven the other people wrong. Welcome back, Jim Labenthal. Michael, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on and for that very warm introduction. You've you've patted me on the back, which is very rare these days, and thus I won't pat myself on the back, but I do really thank you for having me on. Dude, everybody else has been punching you in the face. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't understand why. I mean, a little pat on the back. And I think, I think that uh, those who were throwing the punches, hey, judge, are you listening? Those who have been throwing <laughs> the punches could them they themselves eat a slice of humble pie and say, wow, wow, Labenthal was right. And and if you want to pat yourself on the back, Judge, I think you can do that too and say, hey, I kept Labenthal on. I kept bringing you this voice. And uh, because it's an important, it was an important voice to hear. We all don't have to sing off the same song sheet. First off, you're, you're musing on the fourth quarter. I have to observe that both as a human being and as an investment manager, the start of the fourth quarter makes you think about your mortality. Like, how did we get here so quickly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then as an investment manager, you start thinking about performance, which, by the way, is probably going to drive this market higher in the fourth quarter. Yeah. But I think there's one takeaway from the trajectory of the markets and the economy this year. It is be careful when everybody is on one side of the boat. Now, that doesn't mean when everybody's on one side of the boat, you automatically go to the other side. It means be re really careful. And at the beginning of this year, Michael, you will remember there were plenty of people, uh, macroeconomists, commentators who were on air saying that their models showed a 100 percent certainty of a recession this year. The takeaway from that is if anybody comes to you and says, I've got a model that predicts the future with 100 percent certainty, you should not walk away. You should run away. All right. There is no predicting the future with 100 percent certainty. Um, Correct. Clearly, clearly, this economy, particularly in the U.S., is different than it's been before. I know those are famous last words, but simply put, even though it's three years down the line, this is still the after effects of the pandemic. And we've never shut down the global economy for two quarters solidly in a row and then started it up. And, and we have no data point other than the last three years, which will tell us it takes at least three years, more than that, to get the economy back on stable footing. So you've had this, this back and forth between inventories and the ISM surveys and, and goods uh, uh, consumption versus services consumption. And it's still like a pendulum whose oscillations are starting to dampen, but the oscillations are still occurring. The upshot of this is economic activity is strong, period. People have jobs. Inflation is coming down. And what that means in this mortal fourth quarter, this all-important fourth quarter, is that disposable personal income is rising as we head into the all-important holiday season. Guess what? People are going to travel. They're going to see their loved ones. They're going to buy stupid gifts that are going to sit in the closet, maybe get re-gifted, maybe get thrown out. But people are going to consume because they are employed and inflation is coming down. That's good for this economy, and this economy leads the world. I want to pause there, but believe me, the next thing we should talk about is how does that translate to the markets? The CEO survey recently was cautious. Uh, they expect 
very tight labor market to continue. They expect to have to increase wages. Uh, they uh, are still a majority of them expecting a recession somewhere out there. Uh, I, I, I might go back and edit only for my own, out of my own defensiveness, uh, Mr. Labenthal, because I've been on the side of the boat of a recession. And uh, to be very clear, what I said was when you see the data, this there is data. Uh, I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm an old English teacher. There are data, historical data, that uh, sh have shown when we have seen this data, 100% of the time we've had a recession. Uh, and I would never uh, say that we would have it this year. But I think uh, we'll. I think it's still in the offing out there as this slowdown continues. We'll see. Uh, Labenthal's been right. Farr has not been right. But, but so we'll Michael, can I can I come back to this? Because yeah, I, yeah, I, sure. I certainly think that there is a possibility of a recession. Okay. What you're okay. suggesting is not ludicrous. And I've actually tried to say this on air a few times. The bear thesis, and I don't picture you as a bear, but the bear thesis of a recession, a decline in profits, it's not ludicrous. It's not irrational. But neither is the bull thesis. There are competing narratives and a wide array of narratives. My experience tells me that when there's a wide array of narratives, to err on the side of optimism and bullishness is to be in conjunction with general human nature, which is to expand, which is to explore, which is to grow economically and in the markets and in terms of innovation. So there is certainly the possibility of a recession. Hey, you know what? We've raised... Uh, interest rates, 525 basis points. But the flip side of this is that the negative commentary simply has been too prolific. And I'm sure you get emails and calls from clients saying, hey, Paul Tudor Jones said this. I'm bringing that up because two days ago he said, yes, you know, debt crisis and how can you buy equities? And Ray Dalio says we're going to have a debt crisis. Okay, again, they're not idiots. They're not. Um, but what it's doing is it's it's kind of focusing on the negative to the exclusion of the positives. The positives are, I know I did this a second ago, people are employed. Weekly jobless claims are extraordinarily low. This economy is expanding. The ISM manufacturing survey looks like it's bottom, and we're going to start getting manufacturing going again. And this is all sort of a precursor to next year when all that infrastructure spending hits, the continuing supply chain onshoring, uh, as inflation is factually much lower than it was a year ago. So this is, it's a pretty good situation, but the idea of a recession is not off the table. I just don't see taxi, it as a more likely taxi outcome. drivers. Taxi drivers are consistently telling me and have been for a couple of months that the uh, economy is awful. This is an awful economy. They're telling me about people losing jobs. They're telling me about pressures. They're telling me about a lot. I mean, the, the taxi driver, you know, uh, um, is is always the one I I always ask him. I've asked him for years. I remember, uh, oh hell, thirty years ago at least, uh, I was at an investor luncheon um, at the uh, Willard Hotel in Washington. It was an investor luncheon. It was a it was a fairly shishi small thing. And this very elderly waiter looked at me and he said, "I'm surprised you all are here today." As I I had just stepped out uh, of the of the luncheon. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's triple witching. And I thought, <laughs> this is awful. Why well, I got to go back to my office and sell everything. If the, if, if the elderly waiter at the Willard is telling me that it's triple witching on a Friday, uh, I, 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 that, was, that, was, that was wild. Uh, Michael, 
Michael, have you been out to eat recently? I have been. Yes. Restaurants are packed. Uh, and it's expensive, by the way. Boy, those prices are high in those restaurants. And on your mortality point, uh, I agree with that. It does feel that way. But I also have mirrors in my house, which are constant reminders of, of mortality. Um, so let me go uh, quickly here, Jim, to the banks. Uh, we're Believe it or not, we're chewing through our time uh, and, and with good stuff, I think, for our audience. But the banks are coming out um, now in the next couple of days with earnings are going to give us a sense of whether they've been able to make money, what they've seen in their trading environment. We know that investment banking fees are going to be coming down. Banks are under great pressure. What are you looking for from the banks and what would concern you in these reports? And we keep having this lingering kind of background noise of commercial real estate in portfolios. And, and I was out with some commercial real estate guys last night who were really I mean, these guys were as glum as they could be. This is going to hit. It hasn't hit yet. It's going to be off. We're seeing awful stuff and nobody's leasing office real estate, uh, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Well, the thing we're looking for uh, as these banks come out, Michael, is what are the credit reserves? What are the loan loss reserves? Yes. How big are they piling up? Yes. Now, here's the perverse thing I'm going to say. It's probably going to be ugly. Those numbers are probably going to be big billions of dollars of loan loss reserves. Here's the perverse thing. If my more probable scenario of no recession, the economy continues to expand, inflation ameliorates, if that continues, then think about what's going to happen next summer as the second quarter earnings reports come out. Those loan loss reserves are going to be reversed because that's how it goes. And you know it and I know it. The banks do what they should do. Brian Moynihan, Jamie Dimon, uh, Jane Frazier, all these folks, they do what they're supposed to do. They over-reserve. And then they give it back a couple of quarters later, unless, of course, there is a recession, which, again, that's not a it's not a zero percent probability. Um, by my lights, it's about a 25 to 30 percent probability. Um, I, I think, though, you know, just to do a little bit of analysis here beyond the banks, you, you hear me often talking about economic growth, GDP growth, and there's not a direct correlation between GDP growth. Uh, and the stock market. But there should be now, and here's why, where there is a strong correlation is between GDP growth and top line revenue growth. I mean, that's that's almost a tautological equation. So revenues are going to grow at the same time that inflation is ameliorating. And you mentioned the PPI earlier. You know, the PPI has been much more uh, easygoing, softer than the CPI. And what this all means is that margins are expanding. So if you've got top line growth at the same time that margins are expanding, which I think is likely what's actually happening, you're going to get good earnings growth. And you may well get better than the 11% next year over this year that's projected. You put that all together, that's a pretty powerful elixir for the markets. Um, so it's not just GDP growth. And another way of putting this, it's what's priced into the markets. Still, the hard landing is priced into the markets. You can see that in the cyclical areas of the, of the markets that really have done nothing this year. Um, I think that particularly as we get through not just the bank's earnings, but also the overall uh, economy's earnings in the next few weeks, the markets are going to wake up that things are a lot better uh, than they've given credit for. Jim Labenthal is a partner at Sarity Partners, a CNBC contributor, a voice of reason, uh, one of the smartest and nicest guys we ever get to talk to. And I hope you're hearing, ladies and gentlemen, Jim and I don't agree. 
on a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today. Pay attention to that. Professionals who have a lot of experience, who know what we're talking about, don't always agree. So if you're confused, that's okay. We're confused a lot of the time. So what do we do when we're confused? We follow our discipline. We follow our rules. We remain as dispassionate as we are humanly capable. And we pursue our long-term goals and those long-term goals of our clients as doggedly as we possibly can. Jim Labenthal, thank you so much uh, for co- for guest hosting on the Farcast and for being such a great friend. Michael, my it is a true joy to be on the Farcast with you. And my friendship with you and our mutual friend, Harry, is a great blessing to me. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're right back here. Uh, Mahaffey's out, but Leffingwell is in this week on the Farcast. What's going on with those guys on Capitol Hill? Matt Leffingwell is going to tell us when we come back. Please stay with us. Thanks for being with us on the Farcast this week. If you'd like to read more of Michael Farr's insights into the markets, policy, and the economy, Subscribe to his weekly newsletter from Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors. Each week, Michael sends clients and friends his observations on what is driving the world and what may be coming around the corner. To subscribe, go to farmiller.com slash insights. That's farmiller.com slash insights. And leave your name and email. We will put you on the list. But now, back to the podcast and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Joining me now, Matt Leffingwell. He's a partner at Tiber Creek Group. This is a Washington lobbyist firm you've heard. Matt Leffingwell on the Farcast. Now in season seven, since season one. Since wow. season one. How about uh, who that? Knew? Who knew? Who knew? I thought I was going to give it two seasons, but <laughs> I, I, seven, seven years. Congratulations, five, Michael. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. And our listenership actually just recently is going through the roof. I don't know what's happening, but thank you to all of our new listeners. We welcome you. We ask you to share us on social media. And for those of you new to the Farcast, uh, you really want to listen to this segment from from Leffingwell. I'm telling you right now, I don't know what he's going to say, but I always learn something. I hope you will. I hope you will too. Matt, I was uh, at a luncheon uh, a week ago, just before they, they ended up uh, expelling Speaker McCarthy on the one vote thing. This was a Monday of that week. And there was a senior, very senior Republican senator at this luncheon. And there was a fairly junior Republican congressman. They were friends and they were explaining to this small group around the lunch table uh, what was going on. And the congressman said, uh, look, McCarthy made promises that he absolutely couldn't keep. He said he, he he didn't have the votes to do the stuff he wanted to do. And he just, you know, he, he made a bunch of promises he couldn't keep and, and, and said he could get the job done. And he couldn't and he's got to go. And the senior senator looked up and he said, oh, hell, that's not right. He said, if that were true, we'd all be gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that that really rang true. I mean, they all make these promises and they've done. So we lost the Speaker of the House there. Let's start there really quickly. We, yeah. uh, and, and, and then we can't, we, right now we're looking for another Speaker of the House who has to be a Republican. And Scalise, 
uh, looks like uh, he's going to get the he's gotten the nod, but he may not get the votes. That's right. I mean, it was a very thin margin yesterday when the House Republican Conference had their uh, secret ballot elections internally to elect who their speaker nominee would be. The you know the margin was one thirteen to ninety nine with Jim Jordan, who's well known for ha- helping oust uh, former Speaker John Boehner. Uh, you know, back in twenty fourteen, that is that's part of his legacy, but. But you're right. I mean, Kevin McCarthy back, you know, to get the speakership in this very historic moment where it took 15 ballots in order for him to get get enough votes and cut a lot of deals. He painted him. So we knew that at some point this was all going to come to a head and it was likely going to be about a, around a spending battle, which it ultimately did become about around a spending battle because he just made pledges uh, to a group of conservatives that were never going to be achievable. There is still the factor of having a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Democrat-controlled White House. And McCarthy was more after getting the speakership than he was about like long-term governance of the House. He he agreed to this one vote to vacate uh, the speakership. Uh, it finally bit him. When you get a new speaker, will they get rid of that stupid rule? You know, hopefully they do. I don't think it's it doesn't lend to long term stability in, in governing the House, as has been proven. I mean, this has been, you know, we this the drama has gotten to an epic proportion and historic, you know, historic levels. And I think that there are there are a number of members that are just fed up with it. There are a lot of members who are demanding a change. But I think we need to cross, you know, cross the first uh, milestone, which is getting a speaker in place. I mean, this has been a week over a week now since we've had a speaker and um you know nothing can be done they have a pro you know pro temp speaker in that in the chair right now but he has zero power it's a ministerial position um there will be must pass how long does this go on i mean are they gonna is this something gets settled over the weekend i it doesn't look as 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 if it will be i think you know they will keep members here just as continue to keep make progress i think that when you send members home the herd, you know, the herd can collapse. So any like momentum of support that he may have, and he's meeting with members one-on-one. He was meeting mem- with members late until the night, hearing their concerns, trying to lay their, trying to lay their concerns. And, uh, but if you send members home, then, you know, momentum, you know, momentum subsides. What are they, what's, they don't have another choice though. I mean, why not just elect the Steve Scalise guy? We need a speaker of the house and the, and the house has to do the business of the house. And some some people, I mean, I heard someone speculate that this could even run out the entire time of this continuing resolution to keep government open, which ends on November 17th. I mean, is that possible? That is entirely possible. It's 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 entirely absurd. It is entirely absurd and it's entirely possible. And having worked with Congress, you know, since 2005. Uh, what I've learned is that it it takes a, a lot of political heat in, in order for them to actually do the right thing. And that a government shutdown or a looming government shutdown may be that moment. Well, uh, we we I don't understand why we have to come right up to the br- to the brink, to the edge of the abyss uh with with the with the governing of this but everybody nation. acts so surprised that it happens repeatedly throughout their, like in every country they, they just keep doing it they just keep putting their hand in the car door and slamming it harder each time I it feels it. good michael it feels good <laughs> yeah i mean you know i i don't i remember uh there's a wonderful book 
ladies and gentlemen, you want to read a really wonderful book. There's a book by, called, it's a little short book by a man named Frederick Beekner, B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R. Uh, and he was the chaplain at a prep school up in New England. And he wrote the ABCs, he called, it's called Wishful Thinking. And it was the a, a ABCs, a theological ABCs. And it was really very heartwarming. And it's a nice book. Uh, and when he gets to the word anger, he said, anger is one of the most delicious meals. It's to be chewed uh, over and over and lulled around the tongue. Uh, it's a <laughs> fabulous <know> <laughs> dish until you realize the victim at the feast is you. Yeah. And 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 I I wish maybe I'll maybe I'll go buy five hundred and thirty five copies and send them out and and get them up to Capitol Hill so these jerks can sit, at least understand that you're doing it to yourselves but you're taking the American people with you and that's unacceptable. Well, I mean, you if you know, want to I, slam well, your own hand in the car door, fine, but this is the American people's hand. Stop it. Well, send me a copy of that book. But what's what's becoming very clear about this, the House Freedom Caucus contingent of the Republican conference, is that I think their preference is to be in the minority because what they want to do is be able to complain and throw bombs. They don't, they're not in, interested in governing. And that's been proven time and time again. And, you know, you have them screaming for border security and, you know, more funding, more policy changes, asylum, like changes to our asylum programs. But then they can't even have a speak. You have to have a speaker in the chair in order to legislate. And they're not even getting to the fr in first base on this, nor do they want to. So I think they would rather raise money off of Twitter versus uh, actually, you know, electing the speakers, which which is what they do. They just go take the sound bites home with them and get the, get their campaign coffers re refilled. Yeah, I, I keep watching it happen and I keep getting amazingly frustrated. The war in Israel is horrific um, and we're watching it play out. And uh, you and I were talking ahead of time. Israel right now does not need money. They don't need anything. They just, uh, they're going to continue to fight this and they're actually prepared to do it. It does this, is, is this war happening in Israel something that's good for President Biden? I saw his speech last night that was a bit of full of sound and fury. He sounded very presidential. Uh, he sounded very determined. He did not sound old. Uh, he did not sound frail. Uh, it struck me that this is a not a bad moment for the president. Uh, did it? Would, would you? Would it strike you that way? I I don't disagree. I think there are a lot of other issues that President Biden is dealing with, but Israel and you know our alliance with Israel has always been a unifying factor in politics, and and it gives him the you know sort of a a, a you know a much more statesmanlike position where he is representing our country on an issue that we all agree on. I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a a, a layup for him in terms of of appealing to a much broader audience than just his democratic base. So I completely agree with you. I thought he looked strong last night. I thought he looked like a leader. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, these moments come at the, you know, at the tragic loss of human life. But oh. uh, this is a, I mean, and this has been a particularly horrific. This is horrific. Eek for, you know, in the Middle East. But but yeah. certainly on a political level, this has been a good moment for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So we look at this, perhaps uh, another Trump-Biden redux in 2024. 
Um, I saw a tape this morning, uh, uh, President, uh, former President Trump saying that Hamas was smart and they cut the tape. Um, uh, and he's being lambasted for that and his lack of support for uh, Mr. Netanyahu because Mr. Netanyahu did not support Mr. Trump and Mr. Trump has been unforgiving of those who didn't support him and that includes Mr. Netanyahu. Um, uh, is, is there anything, you, you, you see President Trump with a gaffe, you see President Biden with a gaffe uh, at times uh, saying something that just strikes you as, as, as really very exceptionally tone deaf at the very least. And they keep marching on. Is there anything that President Trump's going to say that's going to alienate that base? Is there a Republican out there who's going to come in and present a challenge? And what is this uh, uh, RFK uh, sort of shift to independent? Will that get any traction and will that hurt President Biden? I, I just gave you six questions at once, but these are all. On the <laughs> I'm going to handle the gaff one first, because I think that's the easiest to answer. And I think given the given just the laundry list of gaffes that he's made and some, you know, some just not even appropriate for this family program, the forecast. I think that we, I don't think there is a gaffe that could damage him with his base. I think his base is solidified. And then you have to remember that, that Biden ultimately does have a base that all is also solidified. This is about a battle for independence. And I don't think RFK Jr. actually appeals to many independents. And I don't think, his his campaign's going to get a lot of traction or a lot of attention. Okay, what about on the Republican side? Mitt Romney's calling for Republicans to coalesce around somebody, not Donald Trump. Will they do it? And he says you've got to do it now. Is he right about that? And will anybody? Uh, we 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 should have done it about a year ago, but that that hasn't happened, and I don't see it happening. And, and unfortunately, I come from probably more the Mitt Romney wing of the Republican Party, but that that wing of the party is in is in retreat, and it's not on the rise right now. So how does this work out? Uh, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is a question everybody asks, and to which no one knows the answer, of course. Uh, in a, uh, do we end up with a Trump Biden uh, a, a, a vote coming up in the fall, and who wins? That uh, seems very likely right now. And if I think if the election were held today, I think Trump would probably win. Huh. Uh, on okay, so tr Trump's the nominee, uh, and then and then Trump wins as it becomes the next president of the United States? That, that's that's what it feels like to me right at the moment. Huh, that's fascinating, fascinating. All right, uh, what are you watching over the next week, Matt, that we should be watching in the balance of the year and we gotta go? I'm watching the numbers on, on uh, Scalise's whip list right now. And that's that's about it. And seeing what the progress, you know, seeing how the Israelis handle, you know, continue to handle the uh, the incursion. Uh, but it's a uh, it's a really messy world right now. Is there any way uh, to get a speaker in that chair in the next week? God, I hope so, Michael. <laughs> Matt Leffingwell is a partner at Tiber Creek Group, our great friend on the forecast here in season seven. Thank you, Matt, very much. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be right back with Les Munson, uh, also another Washington insider with a very global perspective. He's been very right, I believe, on Asia. He's given us great insights in terms of Ukraine. Let's see what he knows about the Middle East when we come back on the Farcast. 
Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the Farcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Joining us now, a Farcast fan favorite, Lester Munson. And boy, when I tell you that Harry Jennings, our producer, knows how to bring in the right guest at the right time. He's done it again, folks. Good work, Harry. Les, as you all may remember, co-head of the International Practice Group at BGR Group. His focus is on the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America, Middle East. How about that? Uh, He was 26 years on Capitol Hill in the executive branch. Uh, He was staff director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, okay, Uh, He was uh, in the Bush administration. He's on the faculty at Johns Hopkins University. He is the man. So, uh, Les, welcome back to the Farcast, now in season seven, Les. Amazing, Michael. Thanks for having me. This is terrific. glad you're here. And welcome again to our well over a thousand in the past two weeks, new listeners for the Farcast. Over a thousand new listeners in the past two weeks. We welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Please share us on your social media We hope that each and every week we offer you insights and experts to help you think about the world a little bit better. I learn things every week. I hope you do too. It's uh, and I I can I I can almost guarantee you're going to learn more than one thing here with Les Munson today. Uh, There's a lot to learn. So uh, Les, we talked with Leffingwell earlier about domestic things. Let's get you started right on Israel. This war why they didn't see this coming. The U.S. intelligence didn't get it. Israeli intelligence didn't get it. How does Israeli intelligence, how does Mossad not get this? It's it's very shocking. Uh, and and we've, we have this uh, conception in our heads, uh, generally for good reasons, that the Israeli intelligence operation is world-class. It's indeed the best in the world. They under such threats from so many places all of the time that they can't afford not to be uh, the very best. And they miss this. It's not it's it's is it akin to Pearl Harbor or 9-11? Uh, the, the, all those comparisons are are apt. This is this was a this was a big whiff um, and, and not to distract us from the main point, which is the atrocities of Hamas and the larger issues at stake in the region. But there, there will be a reckoning in Israeli politics for sure. Uh, at the at the appropriate time, because this this failure can't stand. Tell me about Hamas, uh, if you would, what these guys represent. Uh, this area in Palestine, 
where there are clearly going to be some rather innocent Palestinians, um, and Israel won't care. I, it doesn't, from everything I've heard and everything I've learned about Israel over the years, uh, they are going to exact their revenge, and they will, if they have anything to do about it, leave scorched earth, I believe. Am I wrong? Or tell me about Hamas and well, tell me about the retribution that's uh, yeah. that's uh, underway. Israel's going to have to eliminate Hamas. Hamas is the, the terrorist organization that has been running Gaza for uh, coming up on 20 years uh, after the Israelis pulled out all all Israelis from the region. They left uh, back in about 2005. Hamas has been basically ruling that place since then. They're actually elected in 2007. There haven't been any elections since. Uh, but Hamas is sustained and supported by Iran. Uh, without Iran, Hamas would not be able to do the things it's doing. And and the larger the larger point here is that Israel and Iran have been basically at a low grade war for years in the Middle East, whether it's in Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, in Israel itself, in Iraq. Uh, these two countries have been in conflict. The U.S., of course, very much on the side of Israel through all of this. Uh, but what were this the horrors we saw over the weekend are just the are the latest and most severe episode of a conflict that's been going on for quite some time. President Biden uh, offers is offered very harsh words. I thought last night he looked particularly presidential. He looked very strong. He did not look elderly or frail at all, and he did not mince his words. Uh, I thought it was a very good moment for the president. And one of the things he said was, "Hey, Iran, don't even think about it." Is that something too late? Is that rhetoric that's just wasted? Because don't we have evidence that Iran was actually part of the planning of this? Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, the president's doing the right thing, has been doing the right thing for the last several days. Uh, but his overall policy of engagement with Iran since he came into office, which is the opposite of the previous administration, the previous administration was pursuing a policy of massive sanctions and isolation on the regime in Tehran. Uh, the Biden administration came in and restored the Obama outreach to to Iran. Uh, it hasn't worked. We ha we don't have a new nuclear arrangement with Iran. Iran has not moderated its behavior. Uh, it continues to support terrorism in the region. It is uh, it kills Americans. Uh, at least uh, there's there's a number that keeps growing every day of Americans who were killed over the weekend by Hamas, which is uh, a proxy for Iran. So this, uh, I think, there will be a uh, very much a vigorous discussion in the United States, as it will be in Israel, over the long-term policies of the administration. And I expect this to be a, an election year issue and not to you know say that politics is the most important thing. But we're, you know, the, the president should be able to explain why he was engaging with Iran for the last two and a half years when it produced you're, this you're, kind of you're, you're saying that uh, if we take a look at what President uh, Biden has been doing with Iran, that's really failed policy. And in fact, are you also suggesting that uh, that failed policy has given them the uh, enough slack in the rope that they felt, I guess, bold enough to pursue this against Israel uh, at this time? Are, are they are they think they're going to exploit a moment or do they just not care? Well, one of one of the issues is just resources. And a lot of a lot of folks in the political in our political sphere right now 
are talking about the ransom that was paid to Iran for the five American hostages a few weeks ago of $6 billion. That money actually hasn't been released to, released to Iran yet. So that's not really material. What's material is the sanctions relief that the administration has provided to Iran over the last two and a half years, which amounts to, by some by some counts, to $50 billion in extra oil revenue. That does give Iran the wherewithal to cause trouble in the region. And that is their highest priority. Their highest priority is advancing their revolutionary uh, agenda, which takes the form of terrorism against democracies, against the United States, against Israel, uh, against our friends and allies in the region. And let's not forget, Iran is openly supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine with drones and technology. They're keeping Russia in the game. They are very much a bad actor in the world right now. I can hear our listeners scratching their heads and muttering right now, ladies and gentlemen, I can hear you muttering, why in the hell would we do that? Why would President Biden do that? Why would you, these people, this country of Iran has always been antagonistic to the United States. I can certainly remember uh, the uh, Iran hostage crisis that President Carter dealt with. I mean, this is these guys don't change their stripes. Why would Biden have this softer approach? Why would his administration have a softer approach on these horrible actors? And now uh, we have this crisis. And will his strong words be enough or will this come back to Biden? Well, he's going he's gonna to have to do more than words. We're going to have to show that we stand with Israel uh, and that we are going to give them the things they need to do what they need to do right now, and and whether and there's very likely. Why would he have gotten soft of... on Iran? Though why did he have this reversal from the Trump policy? So I I think there's a view, and it's it's mostly Democrats that have this view view, but not entirely that if you engage with someone who has different values than you and you try to bring them into the international system, that that will moderate their behavior. The, the Republicans did a version of this with China for decades, where we engaged economically with China in the hopes that somehow they would magically become not communists and totalitarians anymore. That didn't work. Uh, this, this idea of engaging with Iran, which is a, a revolutionary extremist regime, and bringing them into an, an arms control agreement like the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal from 2015, that that's somehow going to moderate their behavior and make them a more responsible actor on the international stage. It has proven time and time again to not be a very successful strategy. It can kind of keep the ball going for a little bit, but at the end of the day, you're not going to win with this strategy. And now, and now we're seeing that in spades. You know, I remember having a talk with Brent Scowcroft, who was a good friend of mine, General Brent Scowcroft, I think one of the greatest American heroes ever, ever, Agreed. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he wrote the foreword to my book, uh, Restoring Our American Dream. I spent a lot of time with the general, uh, rest his soul, passed away a couple of years ago, Brent, uh, well into his 90s. Uh, but he was critical uh, during uh, uh, George Bush, uh, 43, uh, the Sun's administration for George Bush's outreach around the world and his notion that he was going to bring democracy yeah. to the world. And Brent looked at me and he said, Michael, the world is not ready for democracy. I've, I've, I've been almost every country in the world, which is saying something. And he said, you know, uh, many countries in the world are not ready for democracy. They are not yearning for democracy. The president said yearning for democracy. He says that is hooey, which was kind of strong for General Scowcroft. He said it is hooey. He says, I've told his father it's hooey. They were very dear friends. 
General Scowcroft and President Bush 41. He said, what I have found, Michael, is that everywhere in the world, people yearn for dignity. And if you can offer dignity, you can offer that olive branch that can begin discussions and begin relationships. And that's the point from which you can actually have discussions and deal, dignity. But so I, I can't, uh, we've been doing this for years, Les, and I, I am frustrated. And I think our listeners are frustrated saying, why the hell do we keep trying the same thing that doesn't work with any country who has made it themselves very clear? They are not us. They don't accept our values. They don't like us. They don't want to be like us, right? Uh, in fact, th they think that we're just absolutely the devil and they'd like to come over and kill a lot of us. So why do we play patty cake with these guys? Well, you know, I do, I do, I take a little bit of that view, uh, but I also, I, I push back a little bit and say, but, I do think, I do think with a country like Iran, the Iranian people themselves are different than the regime, much like the people of Palestine are very different than Hamas. The, the people who are the biggest victims of Hamas are actually Palestinians uh, who have to live in Gaza under their terrible rule. And now, of course, Israelis are suffering even more. Uh, but we do need to be able to distinguish between the regime and the people. In the very long run, we have great appeal to the people, I think, around the world, whether they're Iranian or Palestinian or Australian or British or whatever. Uh, and that is and that's our that's our ace in the hole. But it's a long term play. It's very hard to roll into a country or do diplomacy and say, well, you know, you guys really should be more like us. They're going to say, yeah, thanks a lot for the suggestion. Um, right. But the, the long term play is good for us. We but we need to need to be a little smarter in the in the short term and the medium term. So tell me how this ends. Well, I can't believe it. Less we're out of time already. How do how does what happens here in, in the middle East, what happens in Palestine? It looks like Palestine's going to be bulldozed from everything I'm seeing so far. And then if we extrapolate Palestine and then figure out what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on still with China, and then how do we deal with Iran? All of these things are taking up the mind space for all of our foreign relations and secretary of state. And we haven't even touched Capitol Hill and we don't have time, darn it. Yeah. But um, there's there's two there's two levels of problem. One is the is the global, as you described it, where Iran has basically become the, the best friend of Russia. China's right there with them. That is a big problem for the United States, a big challenge. We're also going to see the situation in the Middle East get worse. This war is likely to expand, whether it's to Syria or Lebanon or other places. This this conflict is going to get bigger over the next few weeks. The administration's got a real challenge to limit it, but also be tough and strong with Israel. Does Saudi Arabia side with Israel? Does the Saudi side with Israel? It'll rhetorically side with the Palestinian people. In behind the scenes, it'll be very much on the side of of uh, Israel. Okay, I know I'm over time, but I have one more question. I have been reading that the U.S. is uh, now helping the Saudis. Uh, build nuclear uh, uranium enrichment plants and helping them in their efforts to have nuclear arms. Why do we continue these relationships with the Saudis who haven't proven to be a whole hell of a lot better, uh, I don't think, than the Iranians, even though they've uh, rhetorically been a little bit nicer about wanting to kill us? Well, a uh, couple of reasons. First of all, we're helping Saudi with peaceful uh, civilian nuclear power, not actual nuclear weapons, to my knowledge. Um, and that is very much at the preliminary stage. 
Saudi Arabia is an have and and the U.S. have a lot of similar interests, whether it's energy in, from the energy sector, other economic stuff in the security space. Uh, so there's there are good reasons for the U.S. to collaborate with Saudi on a number of issues, and that that is actually something that's improved in recent memory, despite their their real human rights challenges with the the new regime in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but that is part of the is balancing policy, act the U.S. must do. Is our policy to the Saudis misguided, or is it okay? What's your judgment? Uh, I think the Biden administration has landed on a sensible policy. They started off doing a lot of lecturing that uh, was actually rather counterproductive, but they've come to a more, much more realistic policy lately, and I'm hopeful they'll stick with it. Okay, I don't trust them. I'm, uh, there you go. Far doesn't trust them. I don't. I don't. The I, Saudis I, or the Biden administration. <laughs> You know, I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, you know, uh, as as terms of administrations go, I, I say a prayer for the president every day, and I don't care what flavor or who it is. I think every American should. Uh, and I hope Bi President Biden will have the most successful final year in office or maybe a next five. I want our president to be the most successful person in the, in the world. Uh, uh, that said, uh, there are a lot of reasons for questioning our government and other governments when you see actions that have been clearly leading to disasters of this nature um, when I feel like we should have really known better. Michael, the, the, the best thing for the Biden administration would be an opposition party that could actually do its job. And that would be good for America. Well, if the opposition party seemed to care, um, President Trump was on a tape yesterday saying uh, that uh, Hamas was uh, he thought Hamas was pretty smart. I think I think he was actually saying Hezbollah was smart. Yes, to be clear, okay. which is almost worse than saying Hamas is smart. Like I don't I don't understand why he says that stuff. It's that's just bananas. But his base doesn't care. His base doesn't care. His base may not be as big as he thinks. We need to see a real uh, challenge to him. Maybe it's Nikki Haley who can emerge as someone who's tough enough and smart enough to take on these really. Uh, insane statements he makes. Leffingwell says that the next election, presidential election, will be between Biden and Trump, and he thinks Trump wins that today. Boy, I hope he's wrong. Do you disagree with him? Uh, I think Trump, I think it's harder for Trump than people think. Uh, I think he's going to, this is still a long way off before actual votes. And I think if, if the other folks in the Republican party can coalesce around, around one alternative, it's going to be a challenge for Trump to get the nomination at the end of the day, he's probably in the best position, though, right now. No one has ever in either party had this much of a lead uh, in the polls and not gotten the nomination. We're, we're breaking all kinds of China these days and all the norms are out the window. So, yes, that may have been true in the past. Doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. I just like the expression breaking China. Uh, I just I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> I hope the double entendre works for the rest of you, ladies and gentlemen. That's it for another Farcast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Thank you, Les Munson. We will be back next week uh, as we try to do it again for you. For my producer, Harry Jennings, all of us at Farm Miller in Washington, Hightower Advisors, thanks for listening. Hey, welcome to our new thousand listeners. Please share us on your social media. I'm really grateful. We think uh, we really thank you for your notes, too. They're coming from around the globe these days. Really exciting. Series seven on the Farcast. Thanks. You're the best. Far loves you. And we'll be back next week. Bye. That's a wrap on this episode of the Farcast. Thanks for being with us here in season seven. 
We hope you enjoyed the show this week and every week as much as we enjoy making it for you. Thanks to our guests this week, Jim Labenthal, and from Tiber Creek Group, Matt Leffingwell, and of course our special guest from the BGR Group, Lester Munson. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings, and it comes to you weekly on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. Please continue to share with friends and colleagues. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. And we'll be back with you next week on The Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verify the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.